Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to John. We are in chapter 4, and I am going to begin a reading actually from verse 27 and reading through uh, verse 42. So again, if you have your Bibles with you, let me encourage you to turn there and follow along as I read. This is that passage of Scripture of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? And then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Our study on the doctrine of the church has taken us on a journey through the scriptures as we have seen across the millennia the activity of God in calling a people unto himself. This assembly is first pictured in the Old Testament as those who have been chosen by grace, rescued from bondage, and set aside to be holy unto the Lord, who resides with them in the temple in Jerusalem atop Mount Zion. But that picture takes on a sharper image and a greater clarity with the advent of Christ, who presents himself as the true temple, the very image of God in the flesh, who rescues us from our bondage to sin by his atonement, beckons us to leave the way of the world and to follow him by faith, and then sanctifies us through his indwelling spirit and calls us to serve him as ambassadors 
of His kingdom. This assembly, this church that the Son of God is building is representative of Him, empowered to engage the world with all the love and grace and mercy that we have received from His hand, calling others to also come to Christ in repentance and faith. This is the mission that Christ sets before us. Now, I know that we are familiar with the story of Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, and how Christ revealed himself to her to the degree that she went into her village and enticed others to come to Christ and see for themselves. When we study that, however, we do not always focus on the fact that she immediately engaged in the mission of the church. She told her neighbors about Jesus and how he told her things about herself that he had no way of knowing unless he was anointed by God. And so she raised the question, can this be the Christ? By contrast, the disciples, all of whom who have been with Jesus for some little bit of time already, because they too concluded that he was the Christ, entered that same village, but with only one thing on their minds. Lunch. They do not say a word about Christ to the neighbors of this woman. Probably because they were Samaritans. They do not yet understand the mission that is before them. But I suspect that when those villagers began to stream out of that town to come to the well that this woman told them about, this well that springs up eternally to quench the thirst of one's soul, Jesus said to his disciples, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now what a picture this is. Here is Jesus with 12 chosen disciples refusing to eat the lunch they have fetched from town, saying, I have food to eat that you do not know about, indicating that what sustains him is to do the Father's will and fulfill his own mission, interrupting their lunch by saying, get your nose out of your fish and chips and notice what's happening right now. One of the key issues that confronts the church is a preoccupation with our individual perceived needs. This is a piece of our fallen nature where we fail to look at the world and ourselves through the eyes of the Lord. Instead, with impaired vision, we see our family, our work, our community, our recreation, our friends, our co-workers, and so on. And we assess them based upon how they satisfy us. Do they fulfill me? Do they make me happy? Or the opposite, are they they stressors for me? Do they elevate my blood pressure? Do they harsh my mellow, as we used to say in the 70s? But assessing these arenas of life through such a lens will eventually lead to a disengagement with anything and anyone that dissatisfies us. But as disciples of Christ, we are to see all those arenas of 
life through the vision of the Lord. We're to get our noses out of our fish and chips and see our family as a field that is white unto harvest. We're to stop filling our stomachs with whatever we are feasting on and see our community as a field that needs harvesters. We are to stop worrying about what we will have for lunch today and invite a co-worker to join us for lunch, my treat, so that we can build a relationship that will lead to discussions about Christ. We are to lift up our eyes and see what Jesus already knows, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are to lift our eyes and see what Jesus sees all around us. Now, if that seems daunting to us, I want us to consider the moment when Jesus said to these same disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, earnestly pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, notice first that he says the harvest is plentiful. It's plentiful. In other words, it's like fishing in a stocked pond. We're surrounded by individuals who need Christ and are weary of the vain attempts that they have made to find deep soul satisfaction. And like this woman at the well, they are thirsty for the gospel. They live in a world that gives every impression that it is coming apart at the seams. They have endured worldwide pandemic and financial instability. And they stand on the brink of World War III and they have stopped turning on the news because it stresses them out too much. Beloved, there are men and women and children within the sphere of our influence that would love to know our Savior who has the whole world in His hands. The harvest is plentiful. But notice also that there is one whom Jesus calls the Lord of the harvest. We are to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send us into the harvest. Now that tells me that the results are not up to us, but rather the results are up to the Lord of the harvest. The Lord of the harvest superintends the harvest through the good efforts of His workers who help to ready the soil for planting, who plant the seed of the gospel, who nurture the seedlings as they sprout, who water and feed them to a point of ripeness and are there to assist in the harvest. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now whether or not every encounter we have with others results in their conversion is not our measurement of success. We cannot know the value of our contribution to their journey of faith. The results are entirely up to the Lord of the harvest. Our task is to obediently go and leave the results to the Lord. But notice that we are to pray. When it comes to the mission that the Lord sets before the church, earnest prayer is a necessity. And if we are not asking the Lord to send us, if we're not asking the Lord for the opportunity to serve Him in this mission, 
we will not go. Because it's way too easy to satisfy ourselves with activity in and around the building that we call the church than it is to march out into the field with a sack full of seed known as the gospel and look for opportunities to share the good news of Christ. And so we must pray and ask the Lord to send us, to lead us to those of His choosing, to guide our conversations as we seek to tell others about Christ and to use us, our words and our actions to bring glory to Him and others to Jesus. Now, if we are of the opinion, and there are some, that the mission of the church is to maintain the worship of God and to nurture the flock that has already been assembled, while ignoring the great commission of going and making disciples of all nations, let me remind us of another moment in Jesus' ministry when he was being confronted by the Pharisees who were ascribing Jesus' miraculous deeds to the devil rather than to the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees were drawing a a clear line between good and evil, but they were placing Jesus on the side of evil. Now, Jesus had no problem with there being a clear line drawn between good and evil, but he did have a problem with where the Pharisees placed him and themselves because they had things reversed. And so to clarify, he says to them, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Edmund Clowney has written, Mission is not an optional activity for Christ's disciples. If they are not gatherers, they are scatterers. The congregation that ignores mission will atrophy and soon find itself shattered by internal dissension. It will inevitably begin to lose its own young people, disillusioned by hearing the gospel trumpet sounded every Sunday for those who never march. Now, there is a level of inadequacy that confronts most disciples when it comes to evangelism. Very few of us brim with confidence when it comes to engaging others in conversations about Christ. But if we are first filled with compassion for the lost, then our conversation becomes more natural and no more complicated than providing direction for someone who's lost. You know the moment in his ministry when Jesus said that the harvest was plentiful but the laborers were few that we just mentioned. The verse that immediately precedes that one says this. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the word for compassion there conveys the deepest sense of pity and mercy. We find the same word in the parable of the Good Samaritan who is moved with compassion for the man that he found beaten and robbed. 
And we find the same word in the parable of the prodigal son when Jesus describes the father's emotions towards his wayward child. And he says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Compassion is what God has towards sinners. It's what He has towards us. It's what motivated Him to save you and to save me. And we are called to emulate that compassion in our interactions with everyone, even those who do not yet know Christ. And when we approach our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our acquaintances with genuine heartfelt compassion when deep within the bowels of our being we have a benevolent empathy for them, we will discover that telling them the good news about Christ is not intimidating. It is something that we want to do because we care for them and for their eternal destiny. And that same compassion is what motivates us to do good in the world. The Apostle Peter describes Jesus to the centurion Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 as going about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And Christ's example of doing good set a standard for behavior that the New Testament writers could not ignore. And as a result, we find the admonition to do good offered repeatedly in the epistles. Galatians 6 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Second Thessalonians 3 says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Hebrews 13 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 1 Peter 2 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We read earlier from Colossians chapter 1, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. One of the reasons that the writer to the Hebrews gives for our regular gathering in assembly is so that we can consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. When the church's mission, when our mission in the world is characterized by good works, motivated by genuine compassion, we may be surprised by those within our sphere of influence who invite us to share the gospel with them. So impressed are they by our conduct. 
I still remember to this day something that a seminary professor said in one of my first courses in seminary, a course on evangelism, and he said it is critical that we understand that we need to win the right to be heard. And doing good towards others is a wonderful way to build relationships that eventually provide us with opportunities to bear witness to Christ. Now, I do not want to mislead you because the Bible does not mislead us either. The mission of Christ can and will create conflict with others. There will be relationships that suffer because of our allegiance to Christ. Families have been divided over Him. Jobs have been lost because of Him. Friendships have been strained. Governments have persecuted faithful Christians. But that does not mean that we have a legitimate reason to cease and desist in our mission. It also does not mean that we should intentionally aggravate our sister-in-law, who has been clear she doesn't want to talk about Jesus. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, including sister-in-laws. But imagine if Jesus had surrendered at the first sign of conflict. He knew that the, the gospel would create conflict. When Jesus sent disciples out on their first missionary journeys, one of the things he told them was, if a town refuses to receive you, Wipe the dust off your feet as a sign against them and move on. The Apostle Paul experienced all kinds of conflict, but he never stopped being a missionary. His attitude towards mission is summarized in his second Corinthian letter when he writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And then he asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Now this must always be our understanding about gospel ministry. There are those whom God has endowed with ears to hear the good news, and for them what we share is life eternal, but for those who have so rejected the Lord that they have deafened their hearing. What we say is nothing more than a death sentence, and they resent the truth that we present. In those cases, we are to wipe the dust off our feet and move on. But we may experience what the Samaritan woman discovered. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Let me ask you this morning, how many will we meet in heaven who are there because they heard our testimony about Jesus? 
and came to faith in Him. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray for a few moments this morning.